Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. I'm from the future. I'm here to warn you, don't eat that food. Why not? The eggs, they're full of cholesterol. What? Cholesterol, it it clogs up your arteries. Eating even just one egg can dramatically increase your chance of heart attack. Don't eat eggs. Oh my God, thank you. You're welcome. Godspeed. Just when I thought you'd thrown all the words at me that I'd need to learn for this podcast, atherosclerosis is a new one on me. Uh, a pigeon pair with cholesterol. These are the topics that we're looking at today. Dr. Travis Brown, I know our listeners know this, but just fill us in. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so atherosclerosis, uh, ischemic heart disease, coronary artery disease. So this is the leading cause of death in Australia. So 10 to 15% of all deaths are related to atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, ischemic heart disease. Uh, and so, look, uh, we'll take it a little bit different. As opposed to doing a story first about the history, we'll, we'll take you through the, the pathogenesis of this disease because it's important to put it into context. And, and so if we look at atherosclerosis, it's pretty much fatty plaques or, or fatty streaks that become fatty plaques and, and cause occlusion in vessels. Now, if you occlude a vessel, anything behind it will lose oxygen, will lose nutrients and Ultimately, if it's not fixed, will cause tissue death. Right. And so that's the basis behind coronary artery disease and heart disease is a vessel gets either occluded and then causes a heart attack, if you want to go down that line, because you occlude a vessel and it loses all its nutrients and the tissue dies. And so if we actually look at the word, it, it is Greek. It's It, it means for, for either gruel or hardening. And... The, it's, this is, you know, going back to, you know, pathology 101, you know, you have a normal vessel, we get a fatty streak that becomes a fibro fatty plaque. And when, when you think about that disease process, we actually know that how it comes about these days. To be honest, even I've read some articles saying that, you know, a fatty streak can even start to develop in, you know, children the age of you know, two years of age. So this is a, you know, early developing pathological process. And, you know, you step through the process of how this disease develops. You know, you'll have you'll have a vessel, and the lining in, inside the vessel is is endothelium. And so, what we get is this chronic endothelial injury to an area. Now, we know where these happen. They tend to happen in turbulent areas. So, if you have the coronary vessels, you have the heart, the coronary vessels around there. At the branches is where it tends to be a little bit more turbulent, and that tends to be where you get this just chronic endothelial injury. So some for some reason, the endothelium that lines the blood vessel gets injured. Uh, this can be things like you know smoking or, or whatever for for whatever purpose, but it just becomes injured. And what happens with injury with any part of our body is you get dysfunction of the the tissue. 
and then you get monocytes. So they're, they're blood cells, inflammatory cells, that adhere to this injury area. And then they migrate in that area. And that causes them, when they become monocytes, going from blood into tissue, become macrophages. Mm -hmm. And so what you have is an area of inflammation. And then you start to get migration of smooth muscle. And so we then also get lipid engulfment. And then because the macrophages, inflammation, they start taking up lipid that are there and become foamy cells. And so we then start to get smooth muscle proliferating and you start to get endothelium lining that fatty streak or that inflammation area and you get smaller vessels. Mm. And so that's the, whole, that's the whole pathological process. And then eventually what will happen is you know, three things. You can either get critical stenosis, so the vessel becomes so, uh, the lumen becomes so small that tissue further down starts to lose nutrients and it becomes uh, stenosed and it becomes ischemic. So it takes up until about 70% of your coronary arteries become stenosed for you to get symptoms. So this is what we talk about angina. So someone does exertional angina, you've got a stenosis. Well, the tissue, the muscle as it's pumping, is requiring more more nutrients, more oxygen, but it's not getting it because of the stenosis. So you'll get pain in the heart, angina. The other, other things you can get is an aneurysm and rupture, but you can also get the plaques that uh, become injured and thrombose and then occludes. And then you have an acute myocardial infarction or an event. And so what we know, so there's a few things. Mm -hmm. If the fatty plaque is there for a while, it can calcify. And so it can take years to calcify, but this is why we do calcium scores on there, because if they do uh, you know, uh, calcium elevation, you know there's theoretically a lot more of the uh, calcium there, therefore a lot more atheromas there. Is, is that, uh, here's my plebeian question, is that hardening of the arteries? Is that what it is, it is. And so, and I've, you know, we've even done, you know, autopsies on patients and when you have to examine the coronary arteries, when it's all calcified, it actually blunts the knife as you're cutting through it. So it's actually real hardening of the, the vessels. And so, you know, this is often thought as a modern disease. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, high saturated fats and processed meats and sugar, uh, you know, we think, oh, okay, well, this didn't occur previously, but that's actually wrong. Uh, the, the best example is from ancient Egypt. And so, you know, if you go back to, you know, 1852, they ended up doing what you, at best you can describe as an autopsy on an elderly Egyptian mummy. Yes. Uh, and they found that they had calcified aortic atherosclerosis. And so then in the early 1900s, they did a series of autopsies on these, uh, you know, Egyptian mummies. And again, they found in 3,000-year-old mummies you know, atherosclerotic lesions in the aorta and large arteries. So there, there was even, it was even one that uh, in 1931 where they did the, the heart. So they were able to get the heart of uh, Lady Tai, who lived in ancient Egypt between uh, 1070 and 945 BCE. So she was 85 years old at the time. And what they found, they found coronary artery disease in her. Uh, and they also found areas of uh, myocardial fibrosis. 
So she had had heart attacks before and healed. And so, well, we can't blame the high processed food industry for that. Well, that's we? that's the thing. Her, you know, the 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 traditional uh, food that they eat were beef, sheep, goats, wild fowl. They liked breads, and they also liked cakes. But yeah, you're right. It's not processed food or anything. And this is now in an 85 year old. So mm. now they stopped doing this because it is destructive to the tissue. But we have modern techniques, and there's been a you know the last decade or so there was a research where they actually did imaging techniques on mummies. And they did, they ended up imaging 52 mummies. Now, 44 of them had cardiovascular tissue or vascular tissue to evaluate. And they found that the average death of these people was about 39, plus or minus 12 years. Now, 20 of them had definite atherosclerosis and eight had probable. So about a bit over 60% of them had this disease process going on. Now, 20, the 20 who had it with the atherosclerosis, they were aged about 45, plus or minus nine years, and they had at least two or three vessels involved that had these lesions. And those without were about 34 to 35, plus or minus 12 years. And so the important thing to note here is that it's not representative sample of ancient Egypt. Right. So these are... Most likely nobility, uh, uh, people well-to-do because it was expensive to, to mummify a, you know, a relative, uh, you know, nobility, priests or priestess. And oddly enough, the priests and priestess had better, they didn't show so much atherosclerosis, so their diet might have been a bit different. Uh, but the, interesting, the other interesting part about it is that it wasn't error relevant. So like over thousands of years, it showed the mummies from the different areas eras mm-hmm. had the same kind of uh, pathological findings. So it wasn't this area era had a lot more than others. So look, so it's not a modern disease. Right. So what is that, that? That's what that means, I suppose. It's not a modern disease. It's, it's not. A, yeah. The difference is, it seems just as a general, you know, general statement, they would have died a lot earlier of a lot of other diseases that we won't die from today. So a lot of infections, uh, you know, if the average age is, you know, 30, 35 to 40 of someone dying, then it hasn't had the time for the atherosclerosis to, to take hold. Mm-hmm. And so we do because we are living as a general population a lot longer than they are. And so, you know, there are factors that contribute to this disease, you know, constitutional ones like, you know, genetics, age, sex, can't be changed. With regards to modifiable, we have things like hypertension, smoking, diabetes, and cholesterol. And so, look, there is a there is a caveat in this. Twenty percent of all cardiovascular events occur in the absence of overt risk factors. So there's still parts of the community we don't don't will have a cardiovascular event without the risk factors that we know. Uh, but today, our focus is on modifiable factors Mm -hmm. for atherosclerosis, namely on cholesterol. All right, let's get ready. We have a guest joining us in just a moment. Wait! Stop! You're back! Yeah, we were wrong about the eggs. How? It turns out there's two types of cholesterol. There's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and eggs actually have both. So you can eat eggs, but just don't eat the egg yolks. So t- stick with the egg whites. 
Thank yes, thank you. Godspeed. Joining this pathological life now, we have Associate Professor Ken Sakaris. Ken trained in science, then medicine, at Melbourne University before becoming a pathologist in 1992. He worked for several years at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, including running a specialist lipid cholesterol laboratory performing research, as well as seeing hundreds of patients in the lipid cholesterol clinic. Since then, he's worked in private pathology and currently in his job as chemical pathology director, he supervises testing on thousands of patients each day, including thousands of cholesterol tests. He's well known internationally in the fields of pathology quality and how we define the decision limits we use to interpret blood tests. He has several YouTubes on the low carb down under side with a total of more than half a million views and some may have seen him as Professor Blood in the Australian documentary, That Sugar Film. With great pleasure, Ken, welcome to This Pathological Life. Thank you, Steve. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a guilty pleasure for me because I'm the member of a low-carb community here in South Australia uh, that has international uh, members all over the place, and we are eagerly anticipating this question, uh, this, this interview, even though we're bearing our GP listeners in mind. I want to start with this whole topic of cholesterol because it's a challenging topic for many of us, especially GPs, because the goalposts seem to be moving all the time. So could we start? Are there some fundamentals about cholesterol that are useful uh, for GPs to know? Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember how cholesterol was taught in the past. And um, cholesterol was like a dirty word in medicine. It was, you know, the whole issue is related to cholesterol causes heart disease and and i think that fundamental modern understanding is that um all cholesterol isn't just cholesterol there's a, there's different types of cholesterol that we measure and uh, unless you understand those different types in simple terms the good and the bad cholesterol unless you understand that breakdown um you do not understand what you're doing with cholesterol and, um, and that's why there's such a debate in the community about, um, you know, the usefulness of cholesterol and statins and so on. But um, there is, uh, you know, we've, we have understood more and more over the last 20 and 30 years. When a GP gets a pathology report, uh, pretty much in cholesterol, you see the, the light, you see total cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL, cholesterol uh, slash HDL ratio, and then non-HDL cholesterol. So there's quite a bit of information there. Yeah. When they're looking at it, where, do they, where should we put our money as to say, this is the important part to take from this report? What's the, what's, what do they need to focus on? Yeah, look, it's, it's sort of a, a sadness that the report has evolved in a way that it's its listing is inappropriate. The top line, which is the total cholesterol, is the least useful number. And the bottom line is literally the bottom line. The the most useful numbers are those ratios, whether it's um, total cholesterol HDL ratio or the non-HDL ratio. So um, if, if there's a simple thing is look at the bottom line. Do not look at the top line. We had some working groups uh, nationally to try to work out how to improve that report, to make it more useful and, and, and relevant. And one of the conclusions was that we shouldn't even report the top line, the total cholesterol. It's so useless. On its own, it's so useless. Um, 
I think there's one laboratory in Australia that dared to remove that top line, the total cholesterol, <laughs> and uh, had to switch it on in a couple of days because of the community outcry. It's like, well, what's my cholesterol level? It's like, <laughs> but that top line is is really useless without you know. So so going down the page, um, there's total cholesterol, and then there's a separate measure which is triglycerides, which is really important. And then there's the breakdown of cholesterol, the HDL, the good cholesterol, and the LDL, the, the so-called bad cholesterol. Um, now, that gives you an idea of how the cholesterol is broken down, but the predictive ratios are you know, using those values above in, in different combinations. So the total cholesterol divided by HDL, the total cholesterol HDL ratio, and that's what's used in the cardiovascular risk calendar uh, calculator in, in Australia. That um, That's what every doctor uses to predict cardiovascular risk, the total cholesterol HDL ratio. Now, very strangely, total cholesterol divided by HDL, that's the ratio, and then there's total cholesterol minus HDL, and that's the non-HDL cholesterol, which is now reported um, on most reports in Australia. And that, that subtlety of total cholesterol divided by HDL or total cholesterol minus HDL, the bottom line is that those two figures together give us the greatest prediction. Right. Whether you do it as a ratio or as a subtraction, you have to take into account both those figures. So, so the lowest, so the two lines, so cholesterol divided by HDL ratio and the non-HDL cholesterol are the two most important factors, and that's what you use to sort of manage patients? Yes. Well, look, and I, and I think there is a subtle difference between the two. Total cholesterol HDL ratio, as I said, is part of the cardiovascular prediction. It's the ratio that predicts risk. But it's not that great at monitoring treatment. And, well, in particular, the most common treatment monitored is statin. And so the statin community, if you like, have focused on the total cholesterol minus HDL or the non-HDL cholesterol as being the best number to monitor statin treatment. I don't particularly like them being used interchangeably, like saying that non-HDL is a good predictor of risk or that the total cholesterol HDL ratio is, a, is what you should monitor in statin therapy. They're, 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 subtly, they're very subtly different. and. Um, and so I, I think that you should focus on the total cholesterol HDL for risk. And if you are um, monitoring statin treatment, well, then the guidelines are based around non-HDL targets. Okay. There is a growing uh, sort of confusion also in, in one area that I wanted to ask you about, and this is fasting versus non-fasting cholesterol. Uh, there's, uh, you know, whether... It used to be when I was uh, studying that fasting is the the mainstay. If it's fasting, this is what we what we know to be the baseline. Now I've seen literature that's talking about well, that's actually not your day to day cholesterol. A non fasting uh, sample is actually more representative of what someone's going to be walking around the street with, and so it's it's a bit of confusion because GPs are going well, which one do we use? And is there is there a recommendation? Does it matter? Um, there is a recommendation, and the recommendation is that it doesn't matter, but it matters slightly. The, um, as you say, Travis, the, most people 
don't actually fast for 10 or 12 hours any on any day <laughs> so to to me, to have that as the as the reflection of their daily metabolism is yep can uh, can I just interrupt yeah. because yeah. as part of the low carb community I'm in, we sort of do yeah. a slack form of keto. Yeah. Most days, Monday to Friday, I don't eat until after sort of one o'clock, two o'clock. So yeah. does that mean I'm an outlier in this conversation? Because it, it might be closer to my normal cholesterol because I have such a large swathe of the week in yeah. which my body is operating in that context. Well, that's true. <laughs> we don't we don't say that. Well, we do actually say w- with the fasting that there's an optimal period of fasting, and and the op- ideal it's ten to twelve hours fast. And generally, labs won't accept something as a fasting specimen if it's shorter than eight hours, or if it's longer than fifteen hours. And so, Steve, you've been fasting for longer than fifteen hours. That means that your metabolism is different to somebody who'd only fasted for 10 or 12 hours. Your glucose levels are lower, the hormonal environment's lower. So, so it is true that that, that uh, level is not something we have a, an experience of or a feel for or cutoff values for. So yeah, I, but getting back to that issue about the fasting and non-fasting, again, um, after a meal, your cholesterol level falls. And there's lots of papers that show this. Cholesterol levels fall by 0.1 or 0.2 after a meal. And it's like, well, how could that be? You've just eaten cholesterol. Well, don't forget you've just exported a whole lot of cholesterol with bile to dissolve that meal. And not only that, but there's been a whole lot of fluid shifts in your body when you're absorbing the food that dilute everything in your blood. So typically after a meal, your cholesterol falls. And... Everything falls, including your HDL, your to- your good cholesterol falls. And so in terms of those ratios, both the total cholesterol and the HDL have fallen after a meal. But because they're much the same, the fall, the ratio doesn't change much. And that's what the push has been. It's like, well, if we're going to be focusing on those ratios, they don't change during a meal. So therefore, why do we need to fast? Now, I, I don't know, Steve, about those ratios after 15 or 24 or 36-hour fasts. I mean, I, I think they could change significantly. But, mm. um, but, yeah, as far as that meal. So, so the question is, well, well then why do we need to fast at all? Well, cholesterol doesn't change that much, especially the ratios after fasting, but triglycerides change. Triglycerides rise. The fat in the blood, the pure, you know, the butter and saturated fats and everything, the fat that it absorbed into the blood does rise after a meal, only by 0.2 or 0.3, but that's enough to, you know, say, push a, a, a triglyceride, which should be under 1.5, um, you know, to 1.7, and it's like, and then it's flagged as abnormal. So, so the whole, there's been a little bit of a debate around fasting and non-fasting uh, triglycerides, to say that, well, we should have different cutoffs for fasting and non-fasting because they are subtly different. Mm. And in my opinion, the fasting triglyceride level should be under 1.5 or 1.7. It's often referred to in metabolic syndrome. And the non-fasting triglyceride should be around uh, below 2. So there, there should be a subtle distinction with triglycerides. But since most of the attention is on the, t- the ratios, total cholesterol, HDL ratios or, or non-HDL, 
it really, for most people, doesn't make any difference whether you're fasting or non-fasting. And here was I naively thinking this was going to be a rather simple and straightforward interview this morning. <laughs> Ken, routine checks, is there any advice from you on how regularly they should be conducted for people? I think that if you've got a family history that you know we, we don't fully understand what you should be doing or how intensely you should be treating, well, then you should be having periodic testing. Um, but for most, most of the community, the testing should be appropriate to that clinical need. So if you're, if you're putting on weight or if your blood pressure is rising or you know, if your diabetes control is worse, then you, you need to test more frequently. There is a general guide that the older you are, you should have some routine tests every every year or two. Um, but for young, healthy people, um, I don't really think that they should be routinely tested every year or or every three months. Or if everything's going well, well then enjoy your life. <laughs> Can I ask then uh, which demographics aren't we targeting well? So you, you mentioned there's there's certain areas of people who have family history. Is there an area where you'd probably put most of your bang for a buck with someone that walks in and says, hey, this person would actually benefit from screening? Uh, well, which demographic we're thinking about? Yeah, look, um, there's, forgive the pun, the elephant in the room is obesity <laughs> and overweight. It's really, um, you know, over 70% over of Australia is overweight or obese. And I do remember, and, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of my GP colleagues, but I remember there was a paper in the MJA that reviewed primary care records and found that fewer than 30% of patients actually had a height and weight recorded in the record. And so it's, it's something that's neglected. Um, we focus on um, blood tests and blood pressure. And yet, you know, what we see before us is it, as an overweight or obese patient, that is the alarm in most Australians. So I think that that is a, a broad a broad issue. That's the starting point. Mm. Um, beyond that, I agree that if there's any sort of family history, strong family history, first degree relatives, particularly under the age of sixty years, who've had heart disease, uh, you you really not only have to have a close look at the cholesterol, but measure other tests like uh, lipoprotein little a, which is a, a, an inherited form of, you know, an inherited bad form of LDL cholesterol. And that's, uh, and that's often um, neglected as well. People you know, just um, do the cholesterol. It doesn't seem to be high. It doesn't seem to be a familial hypercholesterolemia. Well, what, what else can we do? Well, you must do a lipoprotein little a because that could explain the entire uh, family history. Ken, as a patient, just a question on behalf of that patient GP dynamic about uh, the lack of uh, weight being recorded. Yes. It does feel invasive and embarrassing yes. to have a doctor get you on the scales, right? At least for me. Sure. Uh, do you think there's part of it there? And and, and is if, if we were more conscious that there should be alarm bells ringing, maybe that should get us over that hump. Um, yeah, look, I understand that. There's been, I mean, a lot of the low-carb community realise that, you know, a patient's weight is 
not entirely their fault. It's like the fault of this toxic environment we've created with refined foods and really addictive foods. And, and so there should be a, a, a greater understanding that, you know, they, people who are overweight are not just lazy people who eat too much. It's like they're the victims of how we've created um, Western society. It's mm. like it's, it's not just Australia, of course. It's even worse in the US and the, in the UK. So, <clears throat> I, yeah, that it is embarrassing, but um, really unless we start facing that issue, um, and, and really over the last five years, I, I would say, um, you know, soft drinks and everything, it really just people understand the harm in those sugary drinks. You know, those drinks that have no cholesterol but a ton of sugar, <laughs> it's like, well, we understand that that's the problem. And, um, but it's not, a, it's not an easy problem. But I do think that, you know, really, if a clinician wants to make the point that there's lifestyle modification required, um, they probably should put the patient on the scale. Mm. Now, I was going to ask, with regards to treatment, going back to looking at the cholesterol itself, uh, is there a particular value for non-HDL cholesterol that, that GPs are aiming for with statin treatment? Uh, is there, is there a, a magic figure at the moment? I know it always changes, and I know the recommendations always change, but is, is there a target at the moment for when this patient is on statin to be aiming for? Um. There's there's sort of a soft target, if you like, of around three, and then uh, tighter targets for patients who are still at higher risk or, um, or you know, need more aggressive therapy, and that's uh, generally under 2.5 or less. There's usually two targets, you know, depending on whether it's primary prevention or secondary prevention and, and so on. But... I don't, I'm actually uncomfortable about talking non-HDL because mm -hmm. um, when we talk about um, the residual risk after with statin therapy, so statins do not prevent all heart disease. They reduce heart disease, but they do not prevent it. And when we look at that residual risk and the attitude of, well, if there's risk where you need a, even lower non-HDL cholesterol, it's ignoring something which is the contribution of triglycerides to that risk. And most of the papers that look at residual risk understand that it's those elements of insulin resistance, of high triglycerides, blood pressure and so on, which uh, are, are really causing that residual risk. You cannot, you can't treat triglycerides with statins. You can't treat blood pressure with statins. You can't treat all of the, you know, fatty liver with statins. So that residual risk has to be addressed with lowering triglycerides. And, and that's where, you know, we don't have uh, great therapies. Combining statins with um, fibrates, uh, you know, is a way of lowering that. And, and certainly we're not as scared of combining those medications nowadays. But as the low-carb community understands, there is a magical way of lowering triglycerides, which is paradoxically eating fat. <laughs> it's, 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 it is challenging areas there. <laughs> it, was, it was the biggest attractor for me, I must confess. 
Uh, yeah, but but it's it's an understandable thing if you just switch it around. You know, how do you teach your body to burn fat? It's by eating fat. Mm. It's like by making that your fuel. Mm. If you how do you teach your body to to store fat? It's like by giving it an alternative fuel so that it doesn't burn at fat stores, like giving it carbs. So it's really a yeah. it mm. is a even though it seems paradoxical, it's surprisingly simple concept to, to manage. Now, I was going to ask about guidelines because there's so many guidelines out there uh, from heart foundations, from uh, general practitioners, from pathology. Is, is there one that you would recommend to probably keep an eye on that's probably the most relevant to GPs trying to actually just keep, a, keep abreast of all this information? Uh, well, the National Heart Foundation guidelines, um, even though they do, you know, they're pushing non-HDL and so on, it, it, it is the reflection of all of our experts and people that, you know, like me have been in the area for 20 or 30 years. Um, to be totally honest, not all those experts understand the nuances of fasting or non-fasting or triglycerides or total cholesterol HDL versus non-HDL cholesterol. But um, they know what works. Um, and so they generally uh, are on the right track, even though, in my opinion, they don't quite understand fully um, the modern perspective on, on how those lipoproteins are metabolised. So I, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't... You, there's no alternative at the moment. That's the point, is that um, there's no uh, specialist group which has um, formed a radically new view of interpreting lipids and managing cardiovascular risk. And so, um, like always, a GP uses the guidelines from those authorities, the guidelines to guide their thoughts, but not dictate their thoughts. So that, you know, there's a subtle difference in pathology when we talk about guidelines and requirements. A requirement is something you must do, whereas a guideline is sort of some, you know, some tram tracks to just keep you on the, on the general track. But you should always, as a, as a trained professional, use your own judgment and your own experience to make that final decision. So that's why I'm sort of saying that the, you know, it's a good starting point, the National Heart Foundation guidelines, but you, you really should take into account all the current, those guidelines are really only updated every five or 10 years. So it's very easy for them to fall out of, you know, current practice. Mm -hmm. Now, I was just going to ask, there's a few other tests that I'm going to throw at you uh, just to get your thoughts on. So when we actually do VLDLs, uh, when is that important or is it important at all? Yep. Yeah, so VLDL is the particle made by the liver that's full of triglycerides. So it's the fat-containing particle. We don't measure VLDL cholesterol. What we measure is triglyceride and assume that the triglyceride has a direct relationship with the amount of VLDL. So, and, and a laboratory could, and they do, just divide the triglyceride level by 2.2 .2 
and give you the assumption of what the VLDL cholesterol is. That's, that's a, a part of the Friedwald calculation the laboratories use. And it's actually how we calculate LDL because we don't measure LDL. We, we just take the total cholesterol, take away the HDL, take away the VLDL cholesterol, which is the triglyceride divided by 2.2, and what's left is LDL. So uh, laboratories, you know, 99% of the time do not measure LDL. They calculate it with this um, assumption of what the VLDL cholesterol is. Now, labs can measure LDL directly. So there, is, there are assays available for LDL direct assays, and that gets rid of all the calculations and assumptions. It's useful when the triglycerides are really high because the calculation of LDL when the triglycerides are high is unreliable. And so, um, so we can use the um, direct LDL assay when uh, triglycerides are really high. Mm-hmm. Now, the, you did mention before, when, when is it relevant or when is it important to do lipoprotein A, a testing? Yeah, well, lipoprotein uh, little a is LDL that's got a tail on it, the APO lipoprotein A protein tail, and, um, and it's atherogenic. We're not entirely sure why it's atherogenic, whether it forms thrombus more or it uh, becomes smaller and denser faster. Or... But that, that particle, um, the, not only the number of tails you might have on your LDL, but also the length of those tails vary um, from genetically. There's not, nothing to do with the diet. And so um, you, and so in some families with um, high levels of LDL um, or long, very long tails, it usually goes hand in hand. You have high levels and long tails. Um, they have a family history, which is often you know quite quite bad. You know, like fathers that have died in their forties, non-smokers, normal cholesterol. That's what I'm saying. When, when you've got a family history that is not explainable, then chances are LP to A will explain that family history. Um, so that's the particular situation when the, cardiovas- the familial cardiovascular risk seems un- unjustified in terms of every other measure we've got. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, not only should that person have LP little a done, but if it's found to be elevated, normal levels of let's say under 300, some of these patients have levels of one or 2,000, um, then you know, they should be encouraged to have the family tested. And the, the last test I want to throw at you, and I'm trying to work out if it's relevant, it's always a bit of a, a challenge, is chylomicron testing. Where is that relevant? That's a, that's a good question. The, um, so chylomicrons are the triglyceride particle made by the gut, by the intestine, when it, as it's absorbing triglycerides. Um, and so um, it's actually the fasting of eight to 10 hours, which lowers triglyceride level, is because we clear all the chylomicrons. So after eight or 10 hours, we expect there to be no chylomicrons left from the last meal. Um, now, and... And it, but it varies from patient to patient whether they clear those chylomicrons in four hours or eight hours or 10 hours. Um, and that's related to insulin resistance. 
And so some patients don't clear them even after 12, 10 or 12 hours fasting. And they've got either a severe form of insulin resistance or they may have a genetic problem in clearing chylomicrons. So generally, but we only generally think about chylomicrons when the triglycerides are clearly elevated, like not above one and a half or two, but above three or four, let's say. Then we're starting to wonder, well, maybe there's more than just VLDL cholesterol, the liver triglyceride particle in the blood. Then maybe there's still lots of intestinal triglyceride particle, which is chylomicrons. And there, um, the usual way we check for that is by doing a lipoprotein electrophoresis, which can look at all the different particles, including the presence of chylomicrons. The labs can actually uh, see chylomicrons without any fancy tests, because if you sit blood that's got a high chylomicron level, it'll have a milky top layer, like a, a middle, you know, just a very fine millimetre or so at the top of the serum, which is the very buoyant floating chylomicron particles. So, uh, yeah, sometimes labs, when they report um, the serum was lipemic, it's a, it's a suggestion that there are chylomicrons present in this patient's blood. So either they didn't fast properly or uh, they've got a problem in clearing chylomicrons, whether they be insulin resistance or genetic. Wow. The last thing we'd like to ask you is to see if you could stand on tippy toes and peep over the horizon. Is there anything coming down the pipeline that might give us hope as far as cholesterol management is concerned? Oh, there's, there's a test that I've been dying to get into the country, um, and it's called uh, phospholipase A2 or lipoprotein associated phospholipase A2. It's a big word. It's got nothing to do with LP little a, nothing to do with LDL. What it is, is um, a product of the foam cells. It, you know, the, so the, the cholesterol LDL, small dense LDL particles are taken up into the plaque mm -hmm. and, the, and the macrophages in the blood vessel wall take them up and just engorge themselves on the on the LDL particle and they become foam cells. Mm -hmm. Now, in the past, we used to use high sensitivity CRP as a measure of the inflammation that's being caused in the body from atheroma. But um, this uh, lipoprotein associated phospholipase A2 is a reflection of that foam cell activity, if you like. Mm. It has been, uh, the, I know the Mayo Clinic's used, been using it for years and they've been using it in studies to try to work out who to give the very expensive PCSK9 inhibitors. It's a really expensive way of lowering cholesterol. Um, but it's a, it's a way of selecting the patients who are at the greatest risk. It's, it's a measure of plaque activity so we've got the, you know, the calcium scores, which tell you whether the plaque has been calcified, whether there's plaque present. But it, it would be wonderful if we had a measure of whether that plaque is active or whether it's dormant, if you like. It's not progressive anymore. And so that test, um, yeah, the reason why it's been a bit of a problem getting into the country is because the, well, the company that developed the test um, you know, sold it off to the highest bidder and that company was really enraptured by um, its potential. And they it seems to me they priced themselves out of the market and the com company collapsed. So um, anyway, the test is being released again. We hope to have it 
soon. And, and I think that it'd be really, um, you know, to be able to look into the plaque would be such a wonderful thing. Well, Ken, you've got Dr. Travis Brown now salivating to get back to the lab. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I'm salivating to go and have a nice juicy steak for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so Associate Professor Ken Sakaris, a.k.a. Professor Blood, uh, thanks for joining us on This Pathological Life. That's no, been great. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so it turns out that the amount of cholesterol in a food doesn't actually affect how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. The eggs are probably fine. In fact, we sort of don't even know what cholesterol is. But the steak! You can't eat the steak! Why not? Turns out that red meat increases your chance of heart attack. You have to cut out red meat. So no steak! Thank you. Godspeed. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening, and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.